What if virtual reality technologies could give us a 3D experience of items normally locked inside museum cabinets? And would we learn more as a result? This is Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth. In this series, we're exploring how breakthroughs here are changing our world today and in the future. This time, how virtual, augmented and extended reality techniques are enhancing our experiences in galleries, museums and even online. Today we meet Dr. Claire Bailey-Ross, Associate Dean Academic in the Faculty of Creative and Cultural Industries at the University of Portsmouth. Heritage has always been really, really important, but in this increasingly globalised world, our understanding and our attitude towards heritage is shaping our sense of place, our context and our sense of selves more than ever before. And with, over the last few years, this explosion of new technologies, it permeates every aspect of our lives. Claire is leading the research into how heritage and history can be shared using 21st century innovation and how presenting information in a way that matches our modern-day lives can lead us to learning more than ever before. One of Claire's areas of study has the rather big title of Digital Heritage. And while this covers all kinds of research and historical records, it includes a lot of elements that you wouldn't find in traditional museum environments. Whether it's storytelling or sharing cultural traditions, Claire has a passion for representing the past using current-day digital methods. This kind of explosion of technology has really affected the way different communities and different people experience heritage around the world, whether their own heritage or those of other cultures. And people are increasingly encountering kind of sites and cultural historic objects through digital media, whether that's virtual reconstructions, whether it's digital representations or digital surrogates of artefacts, whether it's through social media and online videos. And this is particularly true for kind of younger generations, where their first experience of any type of cultural heritage is likely to be through a digital surrogate. So that's completely shaping their experience of the past and their perception of it. And so for me, digital heritage is so exciting because it looks at the old, but it looks at the new and merging those things together. And it challenges us to think about the environment around us, both physical and digital, and discusses whether these changes that are happening with the use of digital technologies are actually for the better. And it's not surprising that Claire's work today is the result of a degree in archaeology and a childhood love of film and TV. Indiana Jones, anyone? I loved Indiana Jones and I really wanted to be that. <laughs> but as I went through my career, became really fascinated in not only the past and how the past is interpreted and displayed in things like museums, but then 
how people respond to that and then how you can use digital technologies to explore that. And I think more and more museums are looking to do that, to bring techniques and tools that are being used in film, in TV, in video games into a cultural context to see how they can be used. Um, the really recent example, actually, is Birmingham Museums Trust have just launched a version of a cultural quarter of Birmingham in the metaverse. So people can then actually virtually go to Birmingham, have a wander around and actually take part in a festival. And I think that's just amazing in terms of opening up accessibility to places that you wouldn't necessarily have gone to before not that people wouldn't go to Birmingham I think it's just showing how experimental museums and cultural heritage organisations are being to try and use new technologies to engage visitors in different ways. If you're a regular moviegoer you've probably seen many movies where technology is the problem rather than the solution that's not the case here Modern digital approaches are being used alongside everything else we already know and love. I'm a firm believer that technology is not about giving us new things to look at. It's about giving us new ways to see. So it's an added value proposition. So it's not there to replace or replicate the physical experience. And I mean, this conversation about digital replacing physical has gone on for a really long time. There was the work of Walter Benjamin in the 1930s about digital reproductions of photographs taking pictures of artworks and loads of people were like people aren't going to then see the real artwork there they're just going to look at the digital but then there was this whole conversation around the loss of aura the loss of the the real the real feeling of being there and of experiencing it firsthand and can you capture that in a digital replica or digital surrogate and again it comes back to well is that what we're hoping to do with digital technologies is it just to replicate the things in a museum space, for example? Or is it to get people to access them in a different way? 90 years ago, the conversation was about two-dimensional photographs. These days, it's about three dimensions. A really interesting example could be kind of a, a 3D object. So you've got a, a real vase, say, and that has then been scanned digitally. So then people who are in a completely different country can then see it, but they can also manipulate it so they can see it. So when it's in a glass case, you can't necessarily see the back of the vase, but in a 3D environment, you can then spin that and augment it in a way that you want to look at. You can zoom in and it just provides added value, which I think is really exciting. And even intangible histories and memories can be made much more accessible and interesting using augmented reality, or AR. Museums are looking to challenge their kind of traditional stuffy ideas of this kind of Victoriana museum that's really wooden with glass cases and you have to be very, very quiet and you read the label, you go, oh, that's interesting, and then walk on. But actually, the public's expectations are changing and visitors are bringing new expectations for participation when they visit both physically and digitally. And this rise of participatory culture, mainly driven by kind of social media, it's producing expectations about engaging in a personalised way. So having a, almost a conversation and understanding that 
individual's history is not something that you can kind of capture in a static museum label which normally about 60 words but with an AR version you can have a video playback that tells you a lot more and you're more likely to engage with it when you understand it to be a person rather than a photograph say it actually brings that human connection. The different terms can be confusing but let's give it a go. Virtual reality or VR is a totally artificial environment Augmented reality, as you've just heard, is AR and combines digital information with the user's environment in real time. And mixed reality, or MR, is like augmented reality, but allows for more interaction. And all three technologies are housed under one roof at the University of Portsmouth's Centre for Creative and Immersive Extended Reality. Ready for another acronym? The CCIXR. The centre is the first of its kind in the UK, and we've already explored some of their work on a previous episode of Life Solved, with their involvement in the Mary Rose exhibition. As Claire explains, there's a lot more going on right now, although you might be surprised by the connection between a D-Day exhibition and Saturday Night Fever. We've been using something called the LCT 7074. Now, that's the last surviving landing craft from D-Day. So it used to have a vital role of transporting men, tanks and supplies across the English Channel during D-Day. And it's huge. It's incredible. You can, you can walk past it. You can go on it. So actually having that as a playground, it's a really immersive experience in itself. And what we didn't want to do with any type of immersive experience, there's this idea of you have a headset that you put over or an AR experience that so you have your phone in front of your face. We didn't want to do that. Part of the challenge that D-Day Story have is that 18 to 35-year-olds don't really visit because war is a very difficult topic and also kind of D-Day unless you're really interested in military history or you're doing it at school, is not really something 18 to 35-year-olds engage with. So we wanted to think about how we could create playful experiences because we spoke to a range of 18 to 35-year-olds to understand what it was that they were interested in. And thinking about play and kind of escape room type game mechanics was something that really resonated with the focus group that we were working with. Here's the big glitterball 70s disco reveal. We've come up with a range of puzzles that have to be solved whilst you're on this landing craft. And one of the puzzles is something called embodied interaction and machine learning put together. So embodied interaction is actually thinking about how you interact with your entire self. So normally when you interact with a digital interface, it's either with a finger or you're typing. It's all about kind of swiping and stuff. But embodied interaction is thinking about how you move your arms, how you move your head, how you move your entire body. So one of the things that our focus group became really fascinated with was the landing craft. So not only was it in D-Day, but in the 70s, it somehow ended up in Liverpool and became a nightclub. <laughs> so that history of that huge object is something that people need to know about. It's just incredible when you think about it. So we wanted to tell that story. So using this uh, idea of embodied interaction, 
We'll create a puzzle where visitors have to strike a number of 1970s dance modes. So you are thinking kind of like John Travolta type poses. And in essence, we've taught an AI to classify certain body positions. And then we've installed a very small webcam on the landing craft. And we're playing 1970s music. And to unlock the next part of the puzzle, you've got to hit certain poses. <laughs> we're, we're trialling it now to see how well it works. This all sounds very entertaining. But is that a good thing? In a culture used to round-the-clock entertainment, is there the chance that the valuable learning gets drowned out by the sound of the Bee Gees? The way that social media and, and quick instant news bites and things are changing the way that our brains are actually wired. So we have to evolve how we present information because our brains are constantly evolving about how we digest that information. And there's a really interesting term in the cultural sector called cultural snackers, which is when you go to a museum or an archive or a library even, you don't necessarily go with a specific need. You go there for a day out just to have a look around. This is the same in a digital environment too. You're not necessarily seeking a specific bit of information, but you're there to understand and explore things that capture your eye. Because you don't have a specific intent, the likelihood is that you are going to be snacking on different bits of culture. So actually having short, sharp, concise bits of experience or opportunities to engage actually means that you might delve deeper and you might have a more meaningful connection because it's captured your imagination. The challenging question that Claire is researching is what does success actually look like? The digital approaches might get individuals in front of an exhibit or engaged by a story online, but how can museums and cultural institutions work out whether their investment has paid off? It might come down to what's called dwell time. Typically, in audience research in museums, you, you kind of time how long people spend in front of different exhibits and how long it takes them to go around the exhibition. Earlier in my career, I was there with a clipboard and a stopwatch following people around, <laughs> asking their permission first, of course, but following them around just to see how long they spent in a museum and what particular kind of touch points in the museum space was capturing their attention. Where did they linger longer? So the, the dwell time, how long did they spend looking at something? And the same is true with digital exhibitions. Are they staying and engaging, actually interacting? So say it's a touchscreen, are they interacting with it? What are they doing? Are they having a conversation with people around them? Is it a social experience or not? And is it increasing their dwell time? And if you're looking for the answers... It's all about the eyes. Eye tracking is where you can get people, again with their consent, to wear special glasses that monitor where their eye is looking, at what point and for how long, so fixations of the eye. And we've done some experiments with artworks, some historical monastic artworks of people in kind of like a countryside environment and they're really very regal clothes. And what we wanted to know is with a digital surrogate, so digital image of the large artwork, but obviously it's digital so it's on a smaller screen, 
where did people look? What did they look at? Did they look at faces? Did they look at clothes? Did they look at the background? Because when it comes to looking at the exhibit face, we don't actually know what people look at. So using eye tracking, we're able to establish that depending on the written interpretation that you provide, so the museum label that you provide, does that spark people looking at the artwork in different ways? So we found that without any museum labels or interpretation, people would look at the face very quickly and then move on. But if you have a museum label that is about the background of the image, people look at the face, but then will look at the background. Then if you have a museum label that is really focused on an intricate design in the clothing of the individual, people look at the face and then they look at the clothing. But that in itself is really eye-opening. No pun intended. That's something we want to explore more about understanding what people look at and then trying to ask questions afterwards about, well, why did you look at that and what did that mean and how did you engage with it personally? So yeah, understanding metrics of success is quite challenging in using digital technologies, but fascinating. The challenge for museums and exhibitions post-pandemic is the use of things like touchscreens. But whilst there might be more caution in 2023, COVID has actually inspired some fresh, innovative thinking too. It's opened up opportunities to think about how museums and the cultural sector can use digital tools in different ways. Is it through deeper narratives online or is it through using things like something called uh, bring your own device? So how you get visitors to use the devices that they have with them so then they don't have to touch anything. They've got their own device that's set up to their own accessibility needs, to their their own ways of engaging with a digital device and providing content on that in different ways. But there's also some more experimental things that museums and other cultural sites are exploring and holograms is one of the things that museums are looking at. Students from the University of Portsmouth have recently finished a project to create a hollow room, that's H-O-L-O, at the Cumberland House Natural History Museum here in the city. Something that involves a pufferfish, a television and a trip to Ikea. It's probably best that Claire explains. We worked with the curator of the museum and she brought some taxidermy creatures, <laughs> objects from the collection, brought them along to CCIXR to take photographs of them. And we used a technique called photogrammetry. And photogrammetry is really kind of the art of extracting 3D information from photographs. So you take overlapping photographs of any type of object and then convert them into either 2D or 3D models. Once you have that 3D model, how can you display it in the gallery space cheaply that doesn't involve touching? So one of the things the students did was they had a trip to Ikea (laughs) and got a small table that they then flipped on its side, put a kind of a, a TV screen on the top and then a sheet of perspex clear glass that's tipped at an angle. Now, if you put the 3D model on that TV screen, the angle of the perspex makes it look like it's hovering and it uses a mirror as well. And it 
creates this reflection of an object, or in this case, it was a puffer fish. And it's pulling the the most incredible face. I mean, it's a puffed up puffer fish, and it just looks like it has a state of constant surprise <laughs> on its face. But using the, this kind of contraption of a mirror, a screen, and an upside down table, you can create a floating puffer fish that will just automatically spin round in, in a 360. So providing the opportunity for visitors to kind of look behind the puffer fish to explore it at a, a much more in-depth angle, whereas the puffer fish that is currently on display is static. You can only see it from the front. You can't see the tail or the underneath, but in the hologram you can. And it might sound surprising from someone in Claire's position, but she believes the future will be less about the tech and more about us flesh-and-blood humans. I think one of the things that museums and the cultural sector need to be thinking about is not necessarily about the technology, but about the experiences that they want visitors to have. What impressions do they want their visitors to leave with? And if they're driven by the experience rather than the technology, this technology almost becomes invisible because it is about connecting people with the collections. And I think the more we can be visitor-centred and less technology-driven, and I know that sounds odd for someone who works in creative technologies, but for, for me it really is about the people and how people engage and then how we could potentially harness the power of technology to produce that wanted or desired experience. The world we live in today isn't always matched to the yesteryear approaches of our museums and cultural institutions. And if the exhibitions of the future are to continue to engage and inform, some of the technologies that Claire has introduced us to will go a long way to doing that. Whether giving the public a 3D image of an item normally locked in a glass cabinet, or bringing alive a nightclub atmosphere in a D-Day landing craft, the world of extended reality could be something of a holy grail for the country's museums. We think Indiana Jones would be proud. Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to our website. You can also get news of the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just subscribe at port.ac.uk slash solve. We'll be back next Thursday with another story of how work that's happening here is changing all of our lives for good. Catch you then.